Welcome back to The Art of Less Doing, episode 61. How you doing, Aaron? Doing great, Ari. How was your weekend? Weekend was very, very good. Uh, you know, it, one of the things that I get asked about a lot, I think, is how we, my wife and I sort of manage the three kids along with everything else. And, and uh, the, <laughs> the my twins are one year old now, so we decided to put them on the same schedule as the two and a half year old. So it was an interesting weekend. Uh, I think a lot of people were very tired, but we had a lot of fun doing a whole bunch of stuff that we couldn't do previously because the twins were going to sleep early and and all that stuff. And uh, I see that you're bouncing around. You've got, you've got your little one in the, in the baby bjorn. So yep. I've had several uh, podcasts like that. So this is <laughs> we'll good. Make it work. Yeah. Oh, and also, I don't, did you see the, um, did you see that picture I posted on Instagram with the diapers? Yeah, that was great. With uh, you made a little standing desk. That was pretty cool. Yeah. So even if you're not a parent, you might you hopefully you can appreciate this. But I, I was it was like late at night, and I we had gotten a delivery from Amazon Prime of uh, diapers, and I I prefer to have a standing desk if I you know what I can uh-huh. when I'm ever I'm at a desk. So I just I they were stacked up, and I was like, yeah, that's the perfect height. And I threw my lap, laptop on top of them, and then uh, posted that as uh, I said, this is how a parent hacks a standing <laughs> desk. So. Yeah, that was great. Do you typically have a standing desk when you're doing your writing and stuff, or what do you do? You know, I, I did for the longest time, and I think uh, way back in the blog somewhere, maybe you can find it and link to it in the show notes. There's a post okay. of my like ultimate standing desk, which I said was no desk. I basically had this uh, keyboard arm that was attached to the wall that was sticking out and had uh, the keyboard and everything on it, and it was sort of like an extreme standing desk in a way. But I, I find that. Honestly, the only time I'm at a computer now is when I'm, you know, podcasting with you or interviewing somebody, or when I'm writing. But other than that, I really don't use the computer, and and so it's it ends up not being a ton of time that I'm at the computer. So right now I, I am sitting. Um, I mm-hmm. think that uh, if I I'm standing, I have this tendency to sort of move around and not fidget, but just move around, which is good. That's one of the benefits of a standing desk so that you don't sit still. But mm-hmm. when I'm doing these these interviews, I feel like it's probably better for me to just to sit in one place for you know half an hour or so and and right. knock it out. So there's also I'm not convinced that being at a standing desk 100 percent of the time is good either. You know, mm-hmm. it, I think it is good for people to sit down every now and then, but uh, you know, a, a very very healthy balance that I think is much more biased towards the standing is is good. And yeah. you're, you're standing right now, right? Yeah, I'm standing. You know, I found that too. I have a stool here that I can sit on. If I stand for too long, my, my calves seem to get a little stiff. So I'm not sure what's up with that, but I, I like to have the transition. Well, so I actually talked to Kelly Starr about this once. You know, so, uh, you know who Kelly is, right? From, uh, yes. Okay, from uh, Mobility Wad. Supple Leopard. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. The author of The Supple Leopard. So Kelly's awesome and uh, actually did a consult for me when I was having an issue with my SI joint uh, years ago. So he's, he's, he's really cool. And he was telling me about how the, you know, the, the reason that bars, at, at, you know, uh, drinking bars, you know, have a sort of foot rest at the bottom is because you're really not supposed to stand in full extension for such a long time. You need to come out of it every now and then as a break. So I thought that was kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there, there are two things I just want to bring up, though, which I hadn't planned on talking about, so we don't have this okay. in the notes today. Um, I, I, you know, I listen to podcasts whenever I can, and, and there's a couple that I really, really love. And one of them is the You Are Not So Smart podcast with Dave McCraney. And mm-hmm. it's he, he's got two books. One is You Are Not So Smart. The other one is You Are Now Less Dumb. But they're, they're basically <laughs> – all he talks about is cognitive biases and – they're fascinating to me because, you know, there's all sorts of ones like 
uh, event size biases and uh, co um, confirmation bias and things that you know people probably heard of. But if you go to Wikipedia, you can see lists of 60 or 70 cognitive biases that we all fall into these sort of traps with our brain. And you mm -hmm. know when we're looking at mental performance, it's always something that, that I that I find interesting. And, and one of the ones that that people know the most, I think, is probably confirmation bias, which is where you tend to put more value on the the information you receive that reaffirms the things you already believe. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, which is – that's a very, very common one. But the, today's episode, and I just listened to this this morning, was about survivorship bias. And I thought that this was particularly relevant to me actually in, in a lot of ways. But so survivorship bias is where we tend to look at the successes and – sort of use those as the data set and we don't ever look at the failures and use those as a data set, which mm -hmm. is interesting. And he was talking about this statistician from World War II era who was helping the War Department with various things. And one of the things that they wanted them to look at was the best way that they could put armor on their bombers on the planes. Uh, because if they put armor everywhere, they, they, they would never take off. There would be too much weight. So it was sort of like strategically, statistically, where would be the best place that we could put the least amount of armor and get away with it. And mm -hmm. the the captain or the major, who, who, whoever was showing him the planes that had come back with bullet holes in them, was showing how there was bullet holes down the center, near the gunners, and around the wings and stuff. And so they were like, well, you know, should we, we probably should put the, the armor there. So do, do you know what the problem with that is? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that came back with bullet holes were not the ones that you have to worry about. The ones, uh, that, the ones that didn't come back are the ones that you have to worry about. So he said that's the actual opposite of what you want to do. You don't want to put the armor in the places where there's bullet holes and they made it back. We need to put the, you know, the armor in the places where the bullet holes brought the planes down. So mm -hmm. you know, it's, it sounds simple, but it's something that people fall into it as a trap very often. And, and the reason I said it's really relevant to me, I feel like, is I come across this a lot when I'm talking to people. Hi. <laughs> I come across this a lot when I'm talking to people about, about Crohn's. And you don't hear a lot of the failure stories, you know, and, and it's just like you look at TED Talks, you know, you're, you're looking at all sorts of really, really successful people. You're not looking at the hundreds of people that have failed at that. And that's, of course, that's fine. You know, we tend to sensationalize things and we like to look at those things more often. But a lot can be learned from the failures. And mm -hmm. I, personally, I feel like I had a lot of failures along the way trying to deal with the Crohn's. And I know that a lot of people have as well. And this applies to so many things in your life, but but what's important about it is to just sort of trip yourself up a little bit and realize that it's dangerous to only look at successes and not failures, and it's more it's even more dangerous to assume that there is no other information than the mm -hmm. success information that we've been presented with. So I know that sounds a little far fetched, maybe or a little out there for less doing, but it really does apply. Honestly, if you're trying to think about how to optimally approach a situation and use that data the best you way. Do you have a failure failure that you can think of that kind of pertains to that? I I know uh, Nassim Taleb talks a lot about this in his book Fooled by Randomness. This uh, that bias that you're talking about. Um, how about you? Do you have something in mind that you were thinking of? Yeah, I do. Well, so and actually, he talks about that in the Black Swan too. And there was a quote, and I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, it was something about uh, about. Wait a minute, I'm going to remember this now. It's about. Uh, basically, stupid ideas are, become brilliant in hindsight, or, or stupid and lucky ideas basically become brilliant in hindsight. Something about right. that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then there was something else 
I'll get back to your question, but there's something else about somebody said that if you look at all the like the most successful companies or the most successful people ever, the one common factor is luck. <laughs> so um, it's you know it's one way to look at that. But um, no, I, I mean I've had business failures for sure, some big ones, and I've also had some health failures. I would say I mean getting getting Crohn's in the first place was almost a big failure, but there were certainly experiments that I did along the way that I think were were not very well advised on my part. And just as a general way, this is actually a perfect example of survivorship bias. The way that I was testing supplements on myself was that I would try a supplement for a couple of weeks or a month. And if it made me feel better or didn't make me feel worse, then that would be my new baseline. And then I'd start from zero again. Then I'd add the next supplement on. Of course, the problem with that is that there's interactions between supplements, but I wasn't even considering that. And mm. I'm trying to remember what it was, uh, but I think it was it was uh, slippery elm bark and cat's claw or something like that. There are two two things. Cat's claw is one of the the supplements that I do recommend to people who have Crohn's or IBS or things like that because not only is it anti-inflammatory, but it actually is a smooth muscle relaxer. Mm. But if you combine that effect with some other things, you could actually end up giving yourself more symptoms of IBS and Crohn's, such as chronic diarrhea and all sorts of things, which can lead to other problems. Um, and there was a few weeks there I remember where I was I was getting making myself very very sick, and I guess I was falling prey to confirmation bias, where I was just trying to get through it and and see it out. So, you know, that's a little bit of a tangent, but I I really I just love that that whole concept. So I really I want to get him on the podcast at some point someday. So. Anyway, uh, yeah. Are you talking about uh, Taleb? No, no. Well, that would be great too. But uh, Dave McGraney, actually, he's oh okay, he's awesome. So, uh, all right. So, what do you got for me today? Uh, well, we've got a couple of questions. Should we get to those? Yeah, let's do it. Um, well, Mike says from Facebook, uh, which is better for HRV training? I have inner balance for iOS. Should I get the M wave? There's an amazing deal on Amazon. Okay, so if you're okay, so one thing to point out here with HRV. In general, so you know, we're talking about heart rate variability training. Um, so the heart rate variability is is one thing we talked about this on the last episode. So I'm not going to go through it again. But basically, you can test it and just go sort of get a number and be aware of it, which is which is nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can actually do training. So with the training, you're actually it's what's called uh, coherence training. So it's where you're basically trying to bring everything into into coherence so that you know what causes your nervous system to do certain things. And you can also use that information then to uh, act in a certain situation or, or basically calm your nervous system whenever you want. So as far as the uh, inner balance versus the M-Wave, so the M- they're both made by the same company. They're both made by the HeartMath Institute. And M-Wave is a standalone device that you can you can clip it to your ear and then it'll go through you know the motions and it'll turn green when you're hitting the, the things you should. And it, it sort of prompts you to do what you what you should be doing to become more aware. And you, it's cool because you can use it in the car. You can use it um, in bed. You can use it kind of wherever you want. Uh, the inner balance trainer is sort of a, it's a device or it's an add on that plugs into your iPhone and then uses your, an iPhone app to actually take you through some visualizations and it's got a lot more display to it. So they're very similar. I would say that if you have the inner balance, you don't need to go for the M wave. Honestly, the, the inner balance has some things that the M wave doesn't, one of which is that. If it's using a big screen, you know, you kind of actually get more information out of it. And I think that it actually has a couple extra metrics as well. Uh, 
the in, the M wave device is definitely more expensive, and it's it's got. I'm not going to say it's like it's it's a, there's a con to it. I mean, it's it's a it's a self-contained device. But honestly, I would say that if you have the inner balance, stick with the inner balance. And if you if you're trying this out for the first time, I, I would also tell people just go for the inner balance. I personally like to be able to do as much as I can through the iPhone and keep that stuff all together. So, Mike, just just stick with the inner balance and and rock your HRV that way. Awesome. Awesome. And you know, there, there's also another one that I use ca- called Ithalete that I find pretty convenient and I think yeah. it's only around $60. So you might want to check that out as well. So the Ithalete is a great one for testing. How do you feel for the training? Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you're right. It's basically just for testing it. There's not a lot of training involved in there. Yeah. So, so it, so it the, sounds like Mike's looking for something to train. Right. So, and, and again, so the HeartMath Institute is sort of like, they're, they're like the place to go for this stuff. And again, there's testing is great and it's really good to know. And you can sort of act or you can plan your day accordingly, like we said on the last podcast. But training it is where you actually get like those benefits of meditation. You know, it's like you can spend five minutes doing HRV training and you're, it's like you're getting an hour of meditation, of deep, really successful meditation. So, there, nice. that's, that's what I have to say for that. Okay. And our next question is, uh, he says, I really enjoyed the book and follow up.cc and the awesome tips. It's my go-to system, but I have a diet question. He says, I recently cool. discovered the history of heart disease in my family, and I've steered towards the, the Gregor Ornish style of plant-based <laughs> diet. And he says, I know that you interviewed Gregor. How do you reconcile uh, following a high-fat diet with the claims of Gregor et al.? I know that you tried to eat good fats, but it seems like grass-fed butter are pretty saturated. Uh, and this is from John in Seattle. Okay, so yeah, I, so I had Dr. Gregor on the on the podcast, and I'm a I'm a I'm personally a big fan of his. Not so much because of the diet that he recommends and all that stuff, because he basically is a disciple of Dean Ornish. But one of the things I love about this guy is he, on nutritionfacts.org, he puts out an original video that he makes every single day with some really, really good data to back up the things that he talks about. Uh, and he goes through, he, he discusses just about every health concern you possibly could imagine. And I'm really one for getting as much information as you can and sort of making your own decisions. I do think that there were some things that he said that, that are a little uh, more out there. Mm-hmm. He said on the interview that one of his, his preferred cooking methods was the microwave, and uh, <laughs> I, which I thought was funny. And I, and I questioned him on it, and he said, well, you know, I said, doesn't it kill some nutrients? He said, well, if it kills 15% of the nutrients, you should have six pieces of broccoli instead of five. So I said, okay, okay cool. Um, <laughs> One of the things that we had some technical difficulties and one of the things that I couldn't get into the interview, couldn't get into the recording, was I asked him about gluten. And I decided not to include it in the interview because, first of all, the audio quality got messed up. But also, it was serendipitous because I think his answer would have gotten too many people pissed off at me or something. But (laughs) I said, so what are your thoughts on gluten? And he says, it's a great protein. Oh, (laughs) I was like, okay, okay, <laughs> okay cool, fine, great. Um, so we talked about the the digestion issues with gluten, and I have I have different uh, thoughts on gluten. Anyway, I'm not I'm not gluten free, and and okay. uh, but but regardless, I, I still think that that's, that was a funny response. Um, okay, so to answer your question, so first of all, if you have a history of heart disease in your family, that's something that you should try to look at in yourself because you can do some testing to see if you have uh, factors for that. You can look and see what your inflammation markers are. So so one of the things that's really important is if you do a blood testing panel from uh, like Inside Tracker, for instance, like, mm-hmm. which is a company I work with, 
you can see what your C-reactive protein levels are and see what your inflammation levels are. You can see what your, uh, your creatine kinase, which is more of a muscular inflammation thing, but there's homocysteine. There's, there's all sorts of ways to see if you are inflamed. Um, if you're really concerned and you have this significant history of heart disease, I would say that you can get some other testing done. You can get an EK, you can get electrocardiogram done, see how the, the structure of your heart is actually doing. And you can see if there is arteriosclerosis or, you know, hardening of the arteries. You can see that kind of stuff. You can also check your cholesterol, although that's a whole other story too about you know low cholesterol versus too high cholesterol and what those numbers really should be. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. anyway, that's the first thing. If you have a history, then you should be getting certain testing done for yourself, and it's something you can you know talk to your doctor about. You can see a cardiologist if you want to get a, a, a consultation. But basically, you really want to be checking on your your inflammation markers and you know keeping sort of that stuff in check. Regardless of what your family history is, but especially in that case, you obviously want to be eating as cleanly as possible. So you had mentioned grass-fed butter. So that brings mm -hmm. up another point, which is that there's some, some really good recent studies that show that uh, – well, I mean there's a ton of studies. And I think that the question has almost been put to bed now that saturated fat does not cause heart disease. As a matter mm -hmm. of fact, saturated fat is more stable. That's one of the things that's really important for people to realize. One of the issues with fat and why it can be dangerous is that fat can oxidize very well. And like if you're cooking mm -hmm. with olive oil, for instance, olive oil is really not meant to be used for very high heat applications like a, a macadamia nut, nut oil would be better or even an avocado oil, I think, uh, is, is more heat stable. Mm -hmm. And when, mm -hmm. you, when those, those fats get broken down, they become rancid or oxidized and then they, it's – it is oversimplifying it, but it's almost like ninja stars going through your body and, you know, they can, they can just sort of wreak havoc. So those oxidized fats and the low quality fats are the things that you, that you, uh, the low quality fats are the ones that are going to cause you the most problems. Mm -hmm. and, and unfortunately in most foods that, that you don't make yourself and in, uh, in uh, fast foods and uh, especially in uh, processed foods, you're going to get all those low-quality fats, those trans fats, those things that really break down and just cause really terrible inflammation. So, mm -hmm. And he can also go back and listen to the Jimmy Moore podcast that uh, Jimmy was on your show and he basically <laughs> eats uh, like 90% fat, something like that lately because he's on a ketogenic diet. Um so that might be a good one to listen to as well. Yeah, and we'll and you know go, we'll throw a link to that in the show notes because okay. I was actually you just took the words out of my mouth and that's perfect. So Jimmy wrote this book called Cholesterol Clarity, which is all about cholesterol, obviously, and uh, his cholesterol is like three fourteen or something, and he has zero inflammation in his arteries, so there's really not a risk necessarily of uh, heart disease from that. Okay, mm -hmm. so now mm -hmm. to to answer the broad question of how do I sort of reconcile the two differences, so. Again, the reason I had Dr. Gregor on was because I really do admire the amount of information that he puts out there and the amount of statistical research that he provides to back it up, uh, including some, a really, really great study that I've linked to before on Crohn's and how they basically used a semi-vegetarian diet to help treat Crohn's, which, mm. which I thought was interesting. Mm. So there are plenty of sources of non-animal protein or non-animal uh, fat, rather. So, you know, coconut oil is obviously a very good one. Nut oils mm -hmm. to some extent, like macadamia nut oil, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but coconut oil is wonderful, and you can get that very well. Uh, Full-fat dairy, if you can find organic, unpasteurized, you know, maybe even raw dairy or full-fat yogurt, those, those are also good fats, honestly, because you're, you're going to get those all those 
positive uh, elements that you need. So you can still have a high-fat diet and be a vegetarian uh, or maybe even a vegan, although I wouldn't recommend that. And mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest, I would say that my diet is mostly vegetarian. I, I, I really do try to only have meat a couple times a week. Um, mm. and, and no matter who you are, meat is inflammatory. There's, um, there's just And you know, yes, Dr. Greger's research will actually back that up, of course. But it's true. Meat is inflammatory. Grass-fed beef is obviously great for you and it's a lot easier to digest and wild-caught Alaskan salmon for instance is something that's really good for you but meat to some extent is always going to be a little bit inflammatory and if you try to think about this from an evolutionary standpoint and this is something I always find is funny with paleo but unless you were like the most skilled hunter ever you were not eating meat at every meal I, 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 <laughs> I'm not an anthropologist but I can pretty much guarantee that and uh-huh. I mean how, how could that be possible so I really do try to limit my meat intake to a couple times a week. I have eggs a lot, and I think eggs are really wonderful. And, you know, people are vegetarians, and they'll still have eggs, so they'll be um, uh, ovo-vegetarians or something, I think they call it. Yep. Um, and then butter, of course. Grass-fed butter is also wonderful. Oh, so, but, so this was my point. So saturated fat, which is the fat that is solid, basically, at room temperature. So that would be like the coconut oil or, uh, or butter or tallow, you know, which, which mm-hmm. is beef fat. Those are the things that you want to limit to about 30% of your fat intake uh, to avoid overdoing it and possibly causing inflammation. So that was that was actually something out of a more recent study, which I thought was very interesting. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can have the olive oil. You can have the, the MCT oil, which I love. You can have coconut – well, wait, sorry, MCT oil um, – olive oil, the the, the uh, avocado oil, almond oils, those kind of things. But for the solid fats, the butter and the coconut oil, don't just go wild with that stuff. That's the thing that you want to maybe limit to a couple tablespoons a day or depending on how big a, a person you are or what your butter needs might be. <laughs> so yeah. uh, there, that, I, I, that's sort of a, a lot of information. But what I would basically say is that if you want to stick to a more plant-based diet, then I would – Add some more coconut oil, some more avocado oil, some more almond oil, macadamia nut oil, um, MCT oil, and uh, I'm missing olive oil, of course, and olive oil. Uh, okay. But I really don't see the problem with having eggs and butter as long as you sort of get them from – not sort of, as long as you get them from very, very good sources. Mm-hmm. So – and again, getting those markers for heart disease checked out on a regular basis. Yeah, so, and, and Ari, you, you know, just as an anecdote for John, um, I, I used to follow a high-carbohydrate diet as a distance runner. And about two years ago, I made a switch and I've been tra- tracking my cholesterol levels and triglycerides and things like that. And actually, all my markers for heart disease have improved. So my triglycerides have gone down, my HDL has gone up. So – at this point, I don't feel like I have a lot to worry about. It seems like everything's getting better. Has that been similar for you, Ari? Yeah. So, uh, do you know what your cholesterol is? Your total cholesterol? I think it's around. It's it's over two. It's like two thirteen, which they say is too high. But my no. it's because my HDL is so high. My HDL has gone up, which is the good one. Yeah. It's around eighty. So it's like, well, yeah, the total is high, but my HDL is amazing, and my triglycerides are around forty seven. So. So mine is 183, which is actually a little low, to be honest. Okay. It's just kind of funny. you know. So people would be like, oh, my God, that's a really good number. But no, I think that's actually a little low. I would like to have my cholesterol. Well, and, and I, that was a few months ago, so it might be different now. But I would like to have mine more around 200, and I think that 213 is great. And what people don't realize is you're supposed to raise your HDL cholesterol, which is the good cholesterol, but that's part of your total. 
So it's like mm-hmm. you're working against yourself. So this 200 <laughs> right. number is almost completely arbitrary. And the thing that, that I would really love people to go back and listen to the Jimmy Moore interview if they haven't, but this is one of the things that he said that was so salient, which is that cholesterol is an anti-inflammatory, which, I mean, it is. And he said it's like the firefighters. He said, when there's a fire, do you blame the firefighters? Right. To try to kill right. them? No. Yeah. So that's the point. You need and, – and there, there, there are people who have had really, really low cholesterol and have died of heart disease, um, it, it happens to anorexics, actually. You know, mm-hmm. when you see anorexics who have died of, you know, heart failure, they have no cholesterol. They have no nothing to, to protect them, to protect their body and their, their insides. So, I mean, that's one of the complicating factors, of course. But right. anyway, so uh, thanks. Uh, what, what was uh, the person's uh, name? John. John, thank you very much for that question. I hope that, uh, I hope that gives you a good answer. You know, some other new things that you've got out this week uh, is you've got your book on Blinkist and it's also on Audible. Yeah, so that's so that's really cool. Um, the Blinkist is I've talked about them before and I, I read, you know, a book, a couple books a week from them. But they uh, they did my book. And so now you can read The Art of Less Doing in nine minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I still hope that you go ahead and buy the book. And if you do, it would be great if you can leave a review on Amazon. But uh, if you if you're pressed for time and you want to get the salient points, you check it out on, on uh, Blinkist. I, I hope that uh, you like it. Yeah, yeah. I, I subscribed to Blinkist. I found out about Blinkist through you, Ari, and I just think it's a great service. So we're going to put a link up for that. But do, you have, do we have time for another question? Yeah, let's do it. All right. This is uh, from John, and he says, I have a couple of questions, and I really like your podcast. He says, in February, Fancy Hands shut down its ability to have assistants make purchases for others' behalf, on, on your behalf. This was a killer feature and one that I know Ari used, and now it's gone. How do you handle tasks that involve assistant, uh, assistants making small purchases? And he's got an, a follow-up question as well, if, if we have time for that. So uh, there's a couple ways. And yes, that was very annoying. So Fancy Hands had some issues with their payment processor, and I think it just became too much of a of a security risk. Or I'm not sure exactly, but they they stopped buying things on your behalf. However, I would like to point out that they were only able to buy things up to a hundred dollars for you. Okay. So there's a couple ways to do this. If you're working with a dedicated assistant. It's actually a lot easier. Depending on the company you're working with, sometimes you can just provide them with your credit card number or you can – if it's someone that you want to form a relationship with, then you can go to American Express and you can get a credit card for them that's just in their name that you know you can put a limit on or control however you want. So maybe they can only have $200 at a time or whatever it might be. But so if it's someone you're working with dedicated, you can provide them with that information. Uh, you can – Using something like LastPass to share your passwords, you can give them access to PayPal if you want, if you feel comfortable with that. Okay. And you can keep a limited amount of money in that PayPal account if that's something that you're concerned about. Uh, I would say that I, I legitimately I think that f- like 30% of my monthly income goes to uh, Amazon. So Amazon, you know, I just – I have no problem giving my virtual assistant or my fancy hands assistants uh, the username and password to Amazon so they can go ahead and buy things for me. And it still saves me that step. I can say, hey, just go buy this on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, furthermore, you can uh, use Square, you know, which I've talked about before as well, and – you could actually, there, I mean, it's a little complicated, but you can make it so that they can send an email on your behalf and pay people using Square. So there's a number of different ways to do that. And it, it kind of depends on what you want to buy. 
But uh, one of the things that you can do, depending on the relationship, again, is that you can use something like Square or PayPal to reimburse the assistant and then let them buy it using their own credit card, which is actually a very common practice. That's probably the easiest because it makes it so that they can go ahead and whatever they, wherever they want to buy anything anywhere, they can just say, okay, I need, you know, th- this purchase is $145. You can say, great, transfer, done. And then they can buy it. Nice, so, nice. And then what's are, the they, are they are they a little bit scared about using their own money? I, do you reimburse them first or or after the first, purchase? First, okay. Yeah, I, w- okay. I would provide them with the money first, and then they can okay. go ahead and buy it. Which is, which is, by the way, the same way that works with a lot of task rabbits. If you need a task rabbit to go buy something for you, uh, depending on the size of the purchase, a lot of times they'll ask you to preload the money with them. You know, give them money by PayPal, and then they will go buy it. Okay. And the second part of this question uh, relates to how you handle your projects. He said, it'd be great to explore how Ari handles his bigger projects. I've never really heard a consistent philosophy about how he organizes projects like writing a book so or keep or creating the less doing course. So how do you go about doing those things that involve multiple steps, Ari? So I still do most, I would do most of it in Evernote. But when it comes to like a project management system, I, I actually am a big fan of Asana and uh, or Trello. Uh, I actually use, they're very similar, but I like Trello. And one of the reasons is that you can do these sort of checklists of processes, you know, because no matter what, you're always looking at how you can create those processes and maybe use them in the future or perfect them in the future. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, for like doing the book, for instance, you know, the the notes and the outline that sort of just took shape. And then from that, I would just, I really look at next steps. I didn't try to plan it out per se. And mm-hmm. even when I do a real estate development, which is obviously very, very complex and there's a lot of moving parts, it's still sort of like what are the different facets that need to happen next, uh, which okay. is so very much like Dave Allen's, David Allen's sort of way of looking at this is like what are the next steps for each of these possible actions and then attacking them that way. But you honestly can do a lot of the project managing stuff that you need to in Evernote. And beyond that, I would recommend Asana or Trello, which again are almost completely comparable, but use both of them for a day and see which one you like better. So I checked out Asana and that seemed more like a collaborative thing, but you've been able to just use it with yourself? Yeah, definitely. And and the truth is, is that even if you're by yourself, you still can maybe have a virtual assistant kind of check in on things. And and Asana and Trello both integrate with Fancy Hands actually, which is really cool. Great. Well, uh, should we talk about some of the cool links that you put up on Friday? One of them I found really interesting was a guy named Chris Bailey who spent a year trying to make himself more productive. Did you? Uh, what did you like about that video? Well, so I've actually spoken to Chris a few times before. I've interviewed him uh, for both the Anthios thing and my podcast. But basically, he made himself into a human guinea pig of productivity and uh, tried. You know, he, one thing he tried that I thought was great was ten days of reclusion where he didn't interact with anybody, and it was it was miserable. <laughs> it was miserable. It did not help yeah. the productivity at all. It was horrible. Um, but you know the thing that came out of it, I think that was the best for him was meditation, uh, okay. and he's he tried all sorts of different things, and and he's just he's a really great guy and just a really like just very personable. So I would just I would definitely recommend people check that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, another cool link that I found, uh, you know, I'm a runner, and I found Nick, Dr. Nick's running blog. He did a two year case study of a woman who had really low fallen arches, and were basically uh, he put her in some minimalist shoes. And her arches actually straightened out. I don't know straightened out, but strengthened. And he documented that. So that was a really interesting post. 
Yeah, so that was awesome. Um, the the biggest thing there is if you don't have you don't have to read the article, just go and look at the pictures, and you see yeah. that this woman's uh, ankles go from like like this, where they're on a really weird angle, to straight, and her arches are, are more pronounced, and and a whole host of other like musculoskeletal problems went away. But that the the pictures are remarkable. So right. uh, I would I would love people to check that out, uh, yeah. and then so the the uh, the interview today is with Holger Syme, who is the uh, co-founder of Blinkist. So uh, mm-hmm. it's appropriate timing that my book is on there, and uh, I'm not sure when we're going to post this episode. But if you are listening to this uh, on Wednesday of the of the first week in May, basically, there's also in addition to my book, there's going to be a curated list on. Blinkist of books that I love and recommend in terms of optimizing your life. So, oh, awesome! I hope everybody uh, enjoys the interview and good to talk to you, Aaron. All right, take care, Ari. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Less Doing Podcast. Today, I am talking with Holger Syme, the one of the co-founders of Blinkist. Hi, Holger. Hi, Ari. Nice to be here on your podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. So I've spoken a little bit about Blinkist before on my podcast and on the blog, but why don't you tell everybody what it is? I mean, basically, um, in short, Blinkist is a service that brings you great content from nonfiction books to your mobile device. Um, When we founded Blinkist two years ago, we were like really busy in our jobs and there were so many great books that we didn't manage to read. But they offered so much great content, and we thought that it's uh, yeah, a pity uh, that so much great content is kind of buried in books and that it's so hard to, to get the ideas out of those books. And that's why we decided that it's time for a solution that unearths um, the content from books and makes them easy accessible with um, nowadays reading habits. So that's what Blinkist is about, basically. Great. So... I've been using Blinkist for for those who have been following me. I've been using Blinkist, so I I made a commitment about a month ago that I was going to uh, read one nonfiction book a week. And thanks to Blinkist, I've been reading four or five a week actually. So the the thing that I love is that there's this, especially with people I deal with, there's this big like fear of missing out. And with the books that you have on there, at least for the most part that I've seen, it's like all the books that you should have read, you know, if you're in a conversation with almost anyone. So um, first of all, how, how are you going about choosing the books? That's, that's a good place to start. I mean, this is really straightforward approach. We try to talk to a lot of experts, try to get curated reading lists, just as we did with you. Um, you're going to create a reading list on, on productivity and um, all things around this. So... Um, so this is one approach to to create books. We obviously we do a lot of research, Amazon bestseller lists. Um, we crawl all the magazines that write about books, and yeah, um, obviously our job involves reading a lot of books ourselves. So um, yeah, there are different different sources um, that we use to create to create the best books. Gotcha. And then you know, there's there's other services that have been out there before where you can subscribe, for instance, and get like business book summaries. And you, a lot of people have probably seen them on SkyMall. And if if you've ever had any experience with them, some of them are some of them are good. But in my experience, they they they're almost like a like a weird kind of Cliff Notes ish version. Whereas with you guys, you you have people reading these and and really editorializing, right? Yes, like this is um, really important to us that we don't we just we don't want to just take some parts of the books and copy paste them together, but we have really intelligent, smart people that are um, field um, true field experts in in the matters they uh, they write about, and yeah, we have them crunch the books as we say. They really think uh, read the book with a with a perspective um, that focuses on okay, what 
what does the reader want to take out of these books and what are the most inspiring and actionable facts from that book? And then they put that into those um, short articles, which we call blinks, that everyone can read in a blink um, on the go. Um, and yeah, this is the, the value we provide to make this knowledge more accessible um, and yeah, kind of add value through through thoughtful reading and through thought, thoughtful putting uh, putting stuff together. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, I want to point out to people. So, my, very, I'm very happy to, to know this, but uh, Blinkist is going to have my book available on the platform in a couple of weeks, and I already thought that I had written a very efficient book. It's about 144 pages, but they're going to boil it down to basically nine short pages. So, I really can't wait to see that version. Uh, but that's that's what's so cool about this is that, and again, this is coming from someone who's written a book like this. A lot of nonfiction books have a lot of fluff in them, unfortunately, because they're the real like you know nuggets of knowledge are wouldn't wouldn't be enough to make a full length book. So you have to fill it with something. And in my case, you know, there's some personal stories which honestly I, I realize may not be of interest to a lot of people. I just you know they're, they're there to illustrate points and stuff. But with you guys, you've really pared it down to. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to know. And what is even better for those who haven't seen this yet is that basically you go to a page and there is a bold three-line thing basically, which is the point. And then there's a page that's a little bit more. But I've, I mean, I, there's been two books where I literally just read the bold points and I really felt like I got what I needed out of it. And I've actually used that information in my business and my podcast and stuff. So it's, it's really amazing to be able to present the information that way. Yeah. I couldn't have pointed it out better, but but what I want to uh, I want to uh, highlight too that it's not about um, replacing books. I think there is right. a market for both. There are avid readers, and we never can replace a book with uh, with ten ten blinks. I mean, uh, you said you had a lot of personal stories, a lot of anecdotes, and this is great. This is uh, what a lot of readers um, value, and this is actually what helps uh, readers to to remember. The content um, and um, anecdotes, repetition, examples, this is all um, really important to really retain the key findings. Um, so, so there's great value in books. And um, I mean, it's on a, uh, written on another page. If, uh, if in um, five years we will still see 300 or 400 pages nonfiction books, because as you said, a lot of books, usually um, the content makes up for an essay of, say, 50 pages. And the rest is um, stories, anecdotes um, to be able to to sell it as a full book. So, but that's that's on a whole um, different page. Whether uh, publishers will still publish long books or will um, you know cut them down to to say a fifty pages essay. Um, but yeah, anyways, for fifty pages essay, the same as for three hundred pages books. Um, it's always important to to have teasers that that get people where they actually read content and people read a lot of content on their mobile devices while they're on the go in their in their in between times and this is where where we uh, where we go with our content so i think yeah as i said um, there's a market for both and a need for both well and and so i think that's a very fair point and i in to be honest i've actually bought three books after reading the blinks and uh, to hear that. It, well and if nothing else there, there are books that I want to have on my shelf in case I want to refer to them again later, or if in case I need to speak to a client about something, or you know, ideally if I want to read everything in that book. But 
a lot of times those nonfiction books end up being personal references in some ways, you know, and, and, um, I know that like Malcolm Gladwell books and, and, um, 59 seconds to change your life. Like those are kind of books that you will go back to and look at those stories or look at the, the points to try to reinforce them. So I've definitely gotten that where the blink has given me the basis and then it's like, okay, I need to have this book available in case I want to reach over and look it up. Yeah. And the, the really the, the nice part is that publishers uh, tend to realize that more and more too. Obviously, some publishers um, look at us quite skeptical because there's always the fear that we might replace or cannibalize book sales. But um, I think the market is going into a direction with or without us. Um, the market shows that readers read more and more short-form content. So there's a, a growing market for short-form and a maybe shrinking market for long form um, when it comes to actually um, reading. I mean, still, as you said, still a lot of people buy nonfiction books, but then they put them in their shelves more as a, as a reference point. Um, and, um, but yeah, the, the reading market goes more towards short form and publishers realize that. And so they get more and more interested about our solution. And yeah, we hope that we can strike some bigger, corporations or licensing deals with um, publishers soon too. Yeah, so well, actually I was going to ask you about what the sort of plans for the future are. So that, that's one of them then, I guess, is you're going to try to just, just suck up as much content as possible, right? Yeah, right. I mean, it's all about um, readers' value creation. So it's not, not everything, not, um, like it's not all about putting as much content there as possible. But then on the other hand, you can put as much content there as possible and solve the creation problem through algorithms rather than only putting the 40 best books out there. You could put 400 books out there, but then have algorithms that show um, you um, the individually created 40 best books for you this month. Um, right. So, yeah. So I, I do want to delve a little bit more into the process that your editors go through. So is, it, uh, is everyone in-house or do you have ed editors around the world or how does that work? Um, it's part-part. Like we have an in-house editing team um, currently that currently consists of six people. And then we have a big pool of freelance experts for every content, for every category we, we're featuring on Blinkist so far. Um, and yeah, we set up, um, we learned a lot um, within the first two years and set up a really efficient process um, that lets an expert read the book and come up with a structure um, of the key messages. Then one of our in-house editors um, skims the book too. Um, so there's always four eyes reading the book, then discussing discussing about the structure, coming up coming up with the with the key insights we want to highlight in Blinks. And then we have um, good writers um, that um, are um, that are capable of taking those uh, structures and insights and making nice uh, texts out of it, basically. Okay, so that that actually sounds fairly complicated. So how how long does it? I mean, in a good way. I mean, it's I, I, it's amazing that there's that many people working on the one thing. Because I was under the impression that someone sort of read it, summarized it, then you were you were good. So how 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 have you managed that process? I'm I'm really curious since you are using some people that are remote and you're you have several different processes that involve some creativity. Yeah. So how how does that how do you manage that process? I want I want the nitty gritty. Yeah, I mean, we have a publishing manager who is kind of the spider in the web, who who has the contacts to all the freelance experts, who knows who is available, uh, who knows um, who who's available like on for full time for a week and can do a fast track book, whereas others might only have two hours in the evening, so they rather need a book that can take four hours to to be summarized um, for four weeks. Sorry, not four hours. Um, 
and um, yeah, so the publishing manager is at the core of everything, and then he just um, he just um, yeah gives away the um, the books to uh, to experts, collects um, collects the insights from the expert, looks for a reader who can who can uh, looks for a writer who can um, write a nice text out of it. Um, it is. It's. Uh, it sounds more complicated than it is. It just needs a really structured person right. who knows all the, re- let's say, resources out there, who knows the availabilities, and then, um, yeah, can can manage um, that everyone, that every book gets the best um, best process possible, the fastest track possible through that resources. And so, how long does it usually take from deciding that you're going to do a book to actually getting it into the app? It takes as long as it has to take. We have a fast track. Like if we say there's this really important book and we really want to have it, um, have it in two or three days. We always have an in-house um, team that can do a really fast track. But um, you know, if it's a book that it's not too time critical um, or that um, we believe um, can take three weeks um, to to be finished, then we give it to to freelance experts. Um, that yeah, that are capable of finishing that in three weeks. So really, um, I mean, obviously, we would love to have only fast track processes to make it even faster. But then that's also um, more complex in terms of management, and it's more cost intensive because then you have to really have full time people, or you have, you need to have freelancers that are available full time, right. basically. And yeah, this is something we. We can't afford it at this time, but we don't want to afford it because there's no really need for affording that. Yeah. And then I realize that it's a completely different animal, but have you considered doing any fiction? Um, no. Yeah, I mean, we have considered it or we've discussed it um, because a lot of people keep asking us. But uh, with fiction, it's all about um, if you really tell the end, you kind of spoil the story. So it doesn't make sense if you if we do a short version of fiction, it's hard to really tease people to read the full book afterwards. Right. And this is something we still want to do because we believe there is a value in, in reading the full book. Um, so, yeah, it's about, it, it doesn't really work for fiction. And uh, I, in an ideal world, um, you read fiction to be entertained. So it's right. actually about, about reading like for 10 hours um, because you want to be entertained 10 hours, whereas nonfiction, it's more about you want to learn something, you want to get out something that you can use in your in your job or in your private life. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and the service is free for a limited time, right? Yeah, we have um, a three-day free trial. And if you refer people and they sign up, you get seven days for every successful referral, seven additional free days. And afterwards, you can choose to subscribe on a monthly, quarterly, or yearly basis, um, starting from $5. Like uh, the monthly subscription starts at $799 and the yearly is um, fifty dollars, so um, yeah, far cheaper. Uh, yes, um, and and I'll tell people even if you just try it for those three days, you can legitimately, if you really want to, you could probably read ten books in those three days using Blinkist because you know the average I think is like fifteen minutes, right, for a book. Yes, yeah, the average is right, like fifteen minutes. But the the, the magic really is that you can read one blink, like one key inside of a book, in about two minutes. So even yeah. if you only have Five minutes waiting in line, um, you can already knock off two key lessons of a book and then, you know, split up the, the 15 minutes throughout your day whenever it fits. 
Yeah, I, so I was doing uh, radio interviews the other day for my book, which came out last week, and I had they had scheduled 12 interviews for me in one day, and they were like 10 minutes each, and I had a 10-minute gap, and it was the same person who kept calling me and then putting me through the radio station, and I had the 10-minute gap, and, I, and she called me back, and she's like, you ready to go? I was like, yeah, I just read three books. <laughs> so, um, all right, well... Holger, thank you so much for, for this. I, actually, there is, there is a question I always like to ask people at the end of this, and, and because you're providing something that I think makes it so much more efficient to do something that is very difficult for a lot of people. What are your top three kind of personal tips for being more effective in general? And it doesn't have to be reading or, you know, just the, what are the three things that you do to be more effective? Yeah, I think it's um, always be aware of your most important goals every day um, and knock them off um, as soon as possible. Then it's focusing um, actually on stuff. Don't do a lot of stuff all at once, but but focus on the uh, on on the like really focus on one thing at a time. And then the last point is yeah, make time to sharpen the saw. Actually, like really um, make time to relax because um, productivity is always about having like being being relaxed or having you know having a good balance between being efficient, being productive at work and also making some time to just enjoy enjoy life. <laughs> I, I think those are, I love those. So great. Well, Holger, thank you so much. Tell everybody where they can get the app, where they can find out more. Yeah, I mean, Blinkist.com. Um, and it's really an easy, easy uh, sign-up process without uh, any credit uh, card information um, required. And yeah, um, we're always open for feedback, for book suggestions, that's something I forgot. Another um, source for, for great books are our customers, yeah. which suggest a lot of books. Um, yeah, I'm awesome. really happy um, um, uh, yeah, to, ha- to have the chance to, to um, present Blinkist on your podcast, Ari. Thanks yeah. for having me. Thank you. And I just want to point out to everybody also, when you read a Blinkist or, or a Blink at the end of it, you can share it with your friends on Twitter, Facebook, whatever. So if you guys do that, Use the hashtag LD Book Club, and we'll put that in the show, the show notes. But that's what I've been using for everyone I read, and it'd be great to see what everyone else is reading that, that follows this podcast. So, uh, Holger, thanks again, and uh, we'll, I'll be talking to you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a good one, Ari.